You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Well, let's do this right now. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians, the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be over in the second chapter. And as you're turning there, what I'd like to do this morning is just remind us that uh, Pastor Capace several weeks back started a sermon series uh, based upon being refreshed, revived in the presence of the Lord, the times of refreshing that come from the presence of God. So today is just a, just a time for us to get into the Word in that same series, and this is a part of that, and then Pastor Capace will finish up the series the next two weeks after today. But as you're turning there in 1 Corinthians 2, and uh, we'll get into the text in a moment, what I'd like to do at this time is, is really talk to you about uh, this specific area that marks a significant part of the way in which somebody lives a Christian life. And it's that of marked areas of faith. And I want to define what that is in a moment, but what I want to do right now is just talk to you about what it means to be refreshed with a faith that is empowered. It would be a tragic thing to this lost and dying world if the body of Christ starts to suffer in the area of an empowered faith. Not just going through the motions of powerless orthodoxy, but living in and with the Spirit's power. Actually going day by day and ending the day with more victories than defeats with the power of God's Spirit in our life. Everyone that follows Jesus should be able to testify that today I sense the power of God upon my life and therefore this is the way the Lord is working in me. What I want to do today is just start off here with a little bit of a visual, aesthetic, a connection that we're going to take this into the text of 1 Corinthians. And what we've got here, if you see the signage here, you'll notice we've got the philosophy of this world and we've got the faith in Christ. And then between that is this two versions of these cups. These cups represent two versions of us. Whether or not we have a divided life of flesh or more of a devoted life of faith that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens as we go through our life, this is kind of how we start off. This black dot represents really just this dark area of the life of sin. My daughter Anna Kate was able to paint these for me so we could represent uh, these this morning. And as we do, I want to be able to draw attention to what exactly this means. Well, the life that is built upon the philosophy of this world ends up being really an empty, an empty, unsatisfying life because it doesn't last. It's dark, it's full of darkness, the darkness that Jesus Christ saves us from as the light of the world. And what happens as we're going through life, we are like this here, we're like two versions of one or the other. And so we, we have the, the things of this world, the philosophy of this world, which is everything anti-God. Anything of which we get our counsel, our direction, our mindset, the things that we take our advice from, and this is like the things of this world. But here, it's like the things of faith in Christ. But this blue dot, this is what represents us. 
And what we find in Galatians chapter 5, we are normally not both. We are usually going to be one or the other because Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6 that no man can serve two masters. He lets us know that he wants us to be hot or cold, indicating we can be lukewarm. And for God's people, this is kind of where we want to draw our attention to think about Galatians 5, the Bible teaches in Galatians 5, verse 16 and 17, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit lusts against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. And hence, that is the reason why daily it's a struggle to fight against the things of the world in which we live that end up keeping us and hindering us from living a fulfilling Christian life. But what happens when we have the things of this world competing for our attention, we have the things that we find are in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, there is no darkness at all, amen? In Jesus Christ, there's nothing but the brilliance of the radiance of the glory of God. He is the light of the world. In him is purity. In him is holiness. In him is what we need. And when we pour Christ, and when Christ is poured into our life, he takes all the darkness that we have, everything that is in us, and not only does he save us from our sin and purify us to be like himself, but he ends up sanctifying us in such a way that we begin living out the life that we started off in this darkness And then we begin looking more like Jesus, even though we're living on this earth right now. That's what it's like. But there's a balance here, and there's usually a war daily going on, and this competes for faith. This puts faith in competition. And where we are right now is that God's people, because we suffer with with this daily balance of the flesh, the desires and the things of this world, what we're born into sin... And how sin continually calls to compete for our attention. The things of Christ fulfill us. They last. They're pure. They sanctify us. And what I want you to do with me right now is let's go into 1 Corinthians 2. And let's take this visual understanding of the philosophy of this world. And let's see what Paul, the apostle, is saying to the church. To kind of see an understanding of how this is going to connect. Here's what we find in the word of God. He says in verse 1. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mysteries of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. I want us to let let that soak in and really internalize this for just a moment. Essentially what we're talking about here is the realization that what Paul is depositing in verse 5 is really the outcome of verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Verse 5, Paul is making this exclamation mark of saying, Hey, Corinthians, I desire that your faith, the faith that you need to live the Christian life effectively, 
would not be based upon the philosophy of this world, but would be based upon the very power that is given to you from God, the power of God. And what we find in that is that because he mentions this faith, it's very, very important that we really define and establish what exactly is faith. Faith is not something I have to myself. Faith is not something that I come up with as my own interpretation of spirituality. Faith is marked and defined in the Scripture in this kind of way. And whatever the Bible says about that, that is more important than any idea we could come up with about what we think faith might be. So faith in the, in the biblical understanding is this. There's two realities of what it is and what it actually does. What faith actually is, is that the Bible teaches here in this verse 5, when it says the word faith, that your faith would be based on the power of God. Faith is a, is a Greek-based word there that just simply means a persuasive belief of the truth. It's where conviction gets activated. Persuasive belief of the truth. So the question is, okay, it's the belief of the truth. What is the truth? Well, John 17, 17, Jesus said to the Father when he was praying, Father, sanctify them, that's the Christians, disciples, by your truth. Your word is truth. So the only way we can biblically attach faith is a persuasive belief of the truth. But the truth is not my opinion. It's not a philosophy. It's not an ideology. It is the very word of God. So therefore, when someone says they have faith, faith is an active response of belief to the truth of the word. That's why Romans 10, 17 even says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the what? Word of God. Faith, word of God. They go together in a beautiful matrimony of united marriage in that kind of respect. So where we are with this is that in verse 5, he mentions this power. And the power that he mentions there that your faith would be, not in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The word power is the word that is used for inherent strength. It means that when I live day by day and I face the situations in marriage and family and work and challenges and stress and health problems, that everything that competes against me wanting to walk in this victorious life with Christ, everything that battles against that faith is able to meet the challenge. But the faith is, a, it is the power of God that activates that faith. It's not like you and I just get through the day and survive. There is a way to thrive and not just survive. There's a way to overcome and not be overcome. And the way in which it's done is through this power of God. But God forbid God's people are powerless in the church. That would not be God's best. So today, my heart's desire is that we would have a refresh, refreshing, reviving response to the very power of God and God's presence in our life in this kind of way. The word here, on the power of God, the, the word on or in is a it's a preposition in the language, and that word means this. It means to be at rest, to not be moving, to be fixed at a state of rest. In other words, God's power that Paul is addressing is given to the person whose faith is activated, but the 
faith is activated, listen, not by the person who's all over the place doing all kinds of stuff necessarily. It's the one that starts their day like an object at rest. They start their day. Lord, I can do nothing today without the power that you give me. Lord, I don't even want to get out of bed yet until I have your power. Lord, I can't even go to the first meeting until I have your power. Lord, I can't even give the first direction to my child until I have your power. In Psalm 4610, the Bible says, Be still and know that I am God. It's when an object's at rest, God is filling that object with power. Didn't he tell the people of the early church, when the power of the Spirit of God would come, what happened to them in Acts 1 and in Luke 24, the Bible says, Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem. Wait. And they went to the upper room and they waited. The object was at rest and then the power of God came. Jesus said, wait until you are filled with the power of God's Spirit. In Luke 10, Mary is at the feet of Jesus. Martha's in there doing all kinds of stuff, distracted and serving all this stuff. And Mary's at the feet of Jesus to hear his word. You can just get the idea that Mary is sitting there at rest, hearing the word of God poured into her. That's what this faith looks like, church. This faith looks like this for you and I today in which we live in a day, in a time of which the pressures are there, the busyness is there, the going and going and doing and doing is there, and there's certainly nothing wrong with those things. But the, but the point is that when we are going to say, Lord, I'm not going to be given back this day again. Once this day is lived, it's in the books. I can never get it back. So the goal is to say, God, with every day I've got, every day you give me breath, every time I have a chance to do anything for you today, it would be better to start off and say, Lord, the object is at rest. I want your power today, and I know I don't want to just go through doing things based upon what I think needs to be done. I need the power of the Lord to come upon me. And that's why Paul is writing this letter to the church at Corinth in AD 55. The biblical faith that they have is actually under attack because the truth is being questioned and confused with Greek philosophy in that culture. That's why Paul is using the words that I'm going to draw attention to in a few moments. That's why there's certain little things he's saying in these verses that goes, oh, okay, I know why he's saying that now. Because culturally speaking, when he was writing this letter in 55 AD Corinth, there was no philosophic attraction to Jesus Christ of Nazareth by the Greek culture. They didn't care who Jesus was, and I'm going to tell you why. The people of Corinth in that day, they were educated. They thought they were better than everybody else. And basically, if you didn't have a philosopher from whom you got your direction, you were nobody to them. They only cared about who you went to hear and how you could speak. They cared nothing about your belief because belief to a Greek mind was relative. Everybody could believe anything and it was okay. That's the way this culture worked. And back then, they didn't like, the, they didn't like Jesus for the simple reason that he wasn't educated in Athens or in Rome. They didn't like Jesus because he came from Nazareth, one of the most uneducated areas and unschooled areas of that part of the world. They didn't like Jesus because he was just the son of a carpenter and he had no scientific basis for his religion. Therefore, the Greeks would only listen for a few minutes. They'd turn it off until the gospel showed up. And when we got the gospel, we've got power, church. 
When the gospel is with God's people and the gospel is in an area, it doesn't matter what's going on around us. The gospel, it will penetrate every area of darkness when God's people are ready to announce and to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today, that's what we understand. And this culture, I want you to see, was very real in this text. And let's do this right now. It always helps for just a moment. We won't be here long, but just for a moment. Let's look at the screen. We're going to step into Acts or, or 1 Corinthians 2. Let's visually, let's step into this, this passage so that we can live their life with them right now as if we're there. And here is what we find. This culture back then looked something like this. This is a picture of what modern-day Corinth would look like now if it looked like it was in 55 AD. This is a reconstruction of the temples, the shops, the specific roads, the ins and the outs, the theaters. And so the Greek culture, the Corinthian culture, they prided themselves on certain areas within that construction. When Paul is writing this letter here to the Corinthian church, he, this is what he's seeing. This is what's going on. And I want to tell you a little bit about how that works. Because basically, this was the most popular city in all of Greece. It was very wealthy and full of people. It was the home of oratory. The home of rhetoric. Rhetoric is just another word for public speaking. Corinth was priding itself on education. How you could speak. How much you knew. How intellectual you were. And philosophy ruled their life. It was so bad that they started even at grade level for kindergarten, first grade or so, they started education classes for the children in rhetoric. So the kids would know how to become an orator and be able to speak publicly and one day maybe make a living by traveling as a sophist. This was the mindset. This was in, indoctrinated into this culture. And what we find is that even in that time, sophists would travel as philosophers and spellbinders would come forth. An average day in the area of Corinth would be men would spend their time going to rhetoric competitions all over the map. They would travel and there would be groups of people in clans of 10, in clans of 100, clans of 50. And your life would involve, who did you listen to today? What did you learn from philosopher so-and-so? And that's how they lived. To give you an even a more realistic understanding, here's what some of those competitions look like. This next slide is actually the Temple of Apollo that was on that reconstruction. This is the area that is actually, literally, that is Corinth right there. These are the ruins to this day. This would be where some of the competitions would be held and pagan gods of worship and things would take place. The next, uh, the next area is the city of Corinth. This is Central Avenue of Corinth. And in this area would be where the traveling would go and the people would have multiple times to speak philosophy. And this is where they would travel and Paul would walk this very road. In fact, speaking to him, the next picture is the actual Bema seat. This was the Roman governor council in Acts 18 where Paul is judged. This is where Paul stood at that very area of the Bema judgment seat by the Roman government there in that area of Rome as it was being colonized, or area of Corinth. And the next is the shops of Agora. And these shops are going to be where the Corinthians would have their businesses and, and the marketplace would be here and people would come to these shops and there would be speaking going on and oratory would be happening in that area because it had so many people to listen. 
Paul was a tent maker by trade. And even his tent making business would have been located to a shop like this, much like a modern day contractor today. It's what Paul was then. This gives us an idea that what we're looking at there is actually Corinth, and that's 1 Corinthians 2 on the screen in a different way. It brings the text to us and us to the text and connects us in this kind of way. The Corinthians had a divided church because they had a divided life. They just could not seem to make up their mind. They were struggling with, we love Jesus, but man, the world looks so good. And that's why 1 Corinthians is written the way it is. The church had gotten in trouble because it had fell back into, fallen back into these things. You see, Paul had been at Corinth for 18 months with the church. He spent 18 months with them. And when he was there, the power of God filled their life. They overflowed in the Spirit's power. Man, God was doing a great work in their life. As Paul was leading, but after 18 months, God called Paul away to go plant more churches and preach the gospel. And then he gets word what's happened in Corinth since he's been gone. And that's why he's writing this letter. They fell back into Greek philosophy. The Corinthian church was doing so well, and then all of a sudden they begin to listen to the things of this world again, and now the world has crept back into the church. Now the church does not look, but now the church looks more like the world than the world like the church. We've got chaos because that's the poison that Satan would love anyone to drink who is trying to follow Christ. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Number one, if life were a cup, Is yours empty or is it full? And the second question would just simply be, what's actually in your cup? What are we filling our life with today? You see, we filled it with the things of this world over here. And as we did, we realized it just emptied on out. So what happens when it empties out? We get desperate. We go back to the things of this world and we hope it's going to last. So we go back and we try it again. And we feel it again, and yet this Christian life is just still sustained by the power of Jesus. It's still pure, but this dirtiness of the world we continue to find is competing for our attachment and our attention. It's very, very difficult in the flesh. That's why it has to be crucified. It can't just be put in a a time out. It can't just be disciplined and grounded for a week. It's got to be crucified. And that's why, because we can't be filled with Christ's power without this crucifixion of the flesh every day. You see, like the Corinthian Christians, let me ask you this. Do you find yourself maybe today divided over too much confidence in the flesh? Divided maybe over achievement, success, money, struggling really to stay consistent in the staying at rest in the Word of God, being filled with His power? Are we distracted with much busyness? Maybe is it that we're living every day and we've, we just really have little sense of fulfillment? We're kind of going through the motions of life, but we don't really feel like, we don't really believe we're making an impact for God. Living in such a way that we sense there is no spiritual power to our life. And therefore we come to that point of saying, why am I so empty? What is it that's not satisfying? What is it about me in Christ that, is there any unconfessed sin? Am I quenching God's spirit? Am I grieving God's spirit? Am I putting up with some things in my life that are really attaching me to the philosophy of this world and I need to really repent of that and retreat to Christ. What is it? 
I want to tell you today to encourage you to have, to be encouraged and don't give up because there's hope. And the hope is this. Just as the Corinthians are getting this letter, we're going to find out, guess what? By the time we read the second letter, praise God, they responded in a favorable way. They did turn back. They did get refreshed, amen? They did not just stay here and die. They got refreshed and revived and God's power came back on them. And Paul's second letter in 2 Corinthians definitely confirms that. So there's hope for all of us here. Let me give you from the text. Let's just take these four truths from verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. And let's just see what these four truths look like to refresh and empower the faith that we need. Remember verse 5. Is that our faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the what? Power of who? God. So this is the power that we need. Verse 1 through 4 is showing us how that power is possible. How that faith is lived out. So here's what it, here's what it was for the Apostle Paul as an example to the Corinthian church, which is transferable right now by principle, and this is now an example to us. So let's listen to what he says in the text, and it's written for us, so we can put it into application. The first truth that comes right off the page is that Paul says this in verse 1. Now watch this. He says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters. Now he's talking to Christians, not unbelievers. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. Paul is going to mention the word speech numerous times because speech is the dominant atmosphere of the Corinthian church because of oratory. Over and over again, Paul is going to say, Corinthians, listen, I'm not wanting you to think about how good of a speaker that I could or could not be. I'm not an orator. I'm an apostle. And I have, an, I have a mission from Christ. And I want to make sure that you are built up in the faith for the glory of God. So he says, hey guys, when I came to you, it wasn't with brilliance of speech or wisdom, philosophically speaking, but I came to you, what does he say? Announcing the mystery of God to you. The key here to realize is that this is an area of declaration. In other words, the area that empowers our faith is according to this, it's the outpouring of a mindset to announce the gospel of Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 1. When I came to you, it wasn't to be brilliant, intellectual. I didn't come trying to tickle your ears and give you something to hear that you like. I came to you with a different mission and a different motive. And my motive and mission was not to impress you and win your popularity contest. I needed to bring the gospel up to you. My goal was to announce the gospel and to show you that I'm living in a way of announcing the gospel. In John 4, 34, Jesus teaches us this very thing. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus' only mission was not to win the crowds, but it was to win the world. And it was to show the world who he was and his mission was to do the will of God. In Psalm 71, 15, as far as announcing the gospel in our own life, the Bible says there, my mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all the day, for I do not know your limits. Not all week, not once a week, but all the day, because we're only given one day at a time. Amen? 
So that's why he says it there in 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Listen to this. He says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. The key in Paul's life, the reason why there was power in his faith. The reason why he lived in God's power. Is because it was his mission His mantra, his mandate, his everyday goal was to announce the gospel. If there was a Walmart back then, Paul would talk to people at Walmart about Jesus. Amen? If there was a DG, if there was someone down the road, I mean, Paul would make sure that someone's going to find out. Because it wasn't an option any day to live and not announce the gospel. Paul didn't come to Corinth to elevate himself, start some kind of religious rhetoric club, because he came as an ambassador of Jesus Christ not as some Christian salesman. What we draw people with is what we draw people to. And if all I want to do is talk about the weather, then that's what I'm going to get. But if I want to talk to people about Christ, that's what I'm going to get. And the result there is going to be that. Paul didn't need theatrics. He didn't need man's applause. He just needed God's power because God's power is enough. He needed the gospel. And he had it. And that's what he had to give. Your faith and my faith is empowered on a daily basis when it is our goal daily to say, today I'm going to announce the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone today because I have the gospel to give. And that's a part of what Paul's faith was, in, was powered up from. He wasn't powered up by a lot of things, but he was powered up by the gospel. The second thing that's mentioned here in our text, look at verse 2. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is, the, this is what we're going to call determination. Because Paul was not only the, experiencing the outpour of a mindset to announce the gospel, but this is the outpouring of a crucified fellowship with Jesus. Now notice this. Notice in your Bible when you see this word here, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The reason why he would make note of that is because back in that day, it was about who you knew. What philosopher have you listened to today? What Athenian idea can you share with us tonight while we're eating supper? Who did you hear today at the shops of Agora? Where did you get your counsel at the temple of Apollo today? What sophist was traveling through? Can you speak into that? Everybody was who you know. They only associated what they knew with each other based upon how philosophical they were. Paul said, the only association I want with you guys, Corinthians, is I want to know how Christ and him crucified is at work in your life. I want to know more about the crucifixion in your life than I do the resurrection. I want to know that you are walking with crucified fellowship with Jesus. That word decide, listen, that word decide, I decided not to know anything among you. The word decide was a legal term for judging back then. And it meant to distinguish or determine something judicially. That meant there was no philosophical pressure for Paul. The message of the cross for Paul, legally speaking, was just as binding as the verdict in the court of law. Amen? He just simply said, I made up my mind. I'm settled. I'm settled with the fact that I only care to know of you how is Christ in fellowship with Jesus doing in your life. In Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42, the Bible says there, Jesus prayed, Father, if it is your will, 
take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's the recognition, Lord, that I am here on this earth and it's about the cross of Christ in my life and this was the cross that Jesus was going to be facing. But in our Christian life, listen to how this applies. The Apostle Paul said to the church at Galatia in chapter 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, I who live, yet not I. But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Galatians 5.24, he says, Those who are Christ, who belong to Christ, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In Galatians 6.14, he says, But God forbid that I should boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. All the point of that understanding there is that Paul says to the church, Guys, when I came to you, I wasn't focused on how well I could speak to you or not. My coming to you was so that I could make you know that the gospel is announced. And I'm announcing it so you can keep announcing it. Quit focusing on what the philosopher said. Focus on what Jesus said. Amen? And then he says, he says, guys, I don't care about knowing who you've been in association with today. I just determined not to know anything about you except Christ. And him crucified. What you and I do in application to understand is that that is what this is. It's the outpour of a crucified fellowship with Jesus. The pattern for us in scripture is so obvious. Like the elephant in the room. First it's the cross. And then it's the resurrection. The resurrection is grateful, happy, joyful, heaven, eternal. But the cross is painful and sacrificial. This life we live right now exists for the cross as it costs us to live for Jesus. Eternal life exists for the resurrection when we rise to be with Jesus. The clock is ticking. People are lost. We have a life right now to live. And the goal would be every day as Paul has drawn the Corinthians to this understanding Corinthians, quit focusing on who you know in the Greek culture and what philosophy you've learned. Put that stuff down and walk with Christ and say, today I bear my cross. Today with the cancer, today with the needs, today with the marriage that's fallen apart, today with every situation, today I take this cross and I realize I want to represent Jesus and not people see me represented. I want to make sure Christ is who I'm crucified with Christ. I take on what Jesus said. I take on his commands. And I want to carry Jesus Christ's cross through my life today. Amen? And that's the goal. See, faith that is empowered is that kind of faith. It's the faith that is not selfish. The faith doesn't just check church off and then go live like the devil through the week. It's the faith that says, no, Lord, Monday, Tuesday, wait, I'm going to live for you in such a way that I carry your cross. I bear you. Jesus, what are we doing today? And how do you need me to manifest your name? It's all about Jesus. It is and it will always be. Crucified fellowship with Jesus is what God's people need for a revived, empowered, refreshed faith. But there's a third thing that's mentioned in the text. Another truth that is mentioned here is 
found right there in verse 3. Look what he says. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. I want you guys to just kind of think for a moment, why is Paul weak? Let's take this in. Why is he trembling? Why is he afraid? What, why would he say this? What is he drawing attention to that we can say, oh, I get it. That's me. Here's what he's saying. The understanding here is that of desperation. It's the outpouring of a contented weakness that we have as God's vessel. Because when Paul said, I came to you in weakness, the word weakness means without strength. Literally, it means strengthless. Listen, it doesn't mean you have a little bit and you're just kind of weak in your strength today. It means there's none there. Have you ever been so exhausted that as soon as you sat down, you just went to sleep within seconds or minutes. It's the realization that I have nothing left to offer anybody. Therefore, I have nothing in me to give. When Paul came before them in this kind of weakness, the Greek base of that word simply means that strengthless. But that's exactly what we need to present ourselves to God in that way. Because when the object is at rest, it is saying, I have no power. Until you give it to me. I don't want to even speak a syllable, Lord. Until I have the power of Christ upon me. So that I can make a difference today. Eternally. In the lives of all that I get to impact. That's the mission. And what's happening here is Paul is being vulnerable. He's transparent. And when he says this, guys, listen to this. This is what's so incredible about the text. Back then in that culture... In rhetoric competition, if you showed yourself anything less than as the man, if you showed yourself anything less than as a prideful, egotistical, you've got it figured out, everybody listen to me kind of thing, if you showed yourself weak, stuttering, nervous in any kind of way, oratory was teaching the culture of that day that you were a coward and that you couldn't hang with the best of them and to go home. It was so dominant in that culture, in Corinth, that when someone presented themselves weak and stuttering and not able to give a good speech, they were outcast. And they were thinking, you need to go back to school. You don't know enough. All about the knowledge. And when Paul presents himself to them in the way, he's polar opposite of what the Corinthians are used to. But he's not apologizing for it because it's... it's what it takes for God's power to use the vessel. The vessel's got to be weakened. The vessel can't offer God, here's my contribution to spirituality. The vessel says, I am nothing, I have nothing, and I can do nothing. I am the branch. You are the vine. Or he, we abide in him and he in us, so we can do nothing without him. That's the understanding. When Paul presents it like this in this text, it makes sense because Paul has already been imprisoned and beaten at Philippi just before he got to Corinth. He was persecuted in Thessalonica and Berea and Athens before he got here. He comes walking into the city of Corinth in such a way that he doesn't have a lot left to offer. But how do we explain for 18 months the power of God that happened to the Corinthian church if he didn't have anything to offer? The power of God. Amen? Paul can say it. It makes sense. 
He can say to the Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling, but look at the outcome of my ministry with you. It's because I'm telling you, Corinthians, I am the example. I'm showing you that you saw of me that there wasn't any popularity. I had no followers. I was basically bringing to you what I knew, the gospel and the power of God. The result of Paul in verse 3 is the result that needs to look like in our life. We find this replicated from our Lord Jesus Christ. When you look at what he says in Philippians 2.8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus took on the weakness, and thank you, Jesus, that you died for our sins. Amen. Hallelujah, church. He died and he rose again, and we have salvation through Christ. But then in 1 Peter 2 and 21, the scripture says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. 2 Corinthians 12 and 9 even says this, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, Okay, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So why does Paul mention what he says in verse 3? I'm, I'm, I'm admitting I was weak and vulnerable. And, str- and, and he, why is he saying that? Because he can boast in his infirmities. Because he knew Christ's power was upon him. And I don't know about you, but I, I, when we live every day, it's not a perfect life. How many of you know every day is a new day and every day has new challenges? And with every single thing we face every day, wouldn't it be amazing if God's people can in such a way say, oh Lord, this is the moment right here where I'm struggling with anger. This right now is where I'm struggling with forgiveness. God, right now I'm struggling with my tongue, my speech. Lord, I want to be judgmental because of what I just saw. Lord, my mind is playing tricks on me. What should I believe? Wouldn't it be great instead of just kind of bluffing our way through the day? We were refreshed and revived in such a way that we were able to say, Father, in this moment, I crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Lord, I give my weakness to you right now because I know that I am weak and fear and trembling in the moment because I'm wanting to cater in and cave into this. But Lord, I don't want that because it keeps leaving me empty. I want you because only you satisfy. Only you fill me. Although he was an apostle, Paul, he humbled himself as a servant to every man's conscience. He found the value in crucifying with Christ. His flesh, his talents, his popularity, his agendas, his mission, everything he did was for Christ. He wanted to become nothing so that Christ would get the spotlight from his life. Paul was as close to a New Testament version of the Old Testament Samson that we probably will ever see spiritually in the New Testament Scriptures. Because even though he was a sinner, he did, by God's grace and power, live by the power of God in a way to set an example that saturates the New Testament. And he did it for the Corinthians here as well. Fourth of all, and last of all, our faith is empowered when we are not just announcing the gospel, and when we don't just have a crucified fellowship with Jesus, daily really living in the crucified fellowship with Jesus, 
And when we are admittedly owning our weaknesses and calling them what they are and saying, God, in spite of this health issue, today your power will flow through me. I give this to you. But fourth of all, he says here, it's a demonstration. And the demonstration of this kind of faith in verse 4 is the outpouring of reflecting Christ as Lord. And here's what I mean, church family. Look at it, it says, verse 4, My speech, there it is again, and my preaching, oratory, there it is again, were not with persuasive words of wisdom, philosophy, winning you over to an idea, but instead, what were they? He says, with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Demonstration is a word that you, we, we will be blessed to know. Here's what it is. You ready? Demonstration in the language of that day meant this. It meant to point away from yourself. To point or prove what kind is being pointed to. To point away from you. Paul's saying, when I came to you, if I was going to win you over based on preaching and philosophy and ideology, then it would point to me. But instead, I would rather have the demonstration or the pointing away from me to the Christ, his power, his cross, his resurrection, and that you would see the Spirit's power is what you need, and the power of God will trump any day any philosophy of this world. That's what he needed them to know. And then when Paul says that, that's where he's going. What we find in the scriptures in John chapter 10, Jesus our Lord said this. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and believe the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus is making it clear. You may not believe me, that's fine, to the Pharisees of that day, but you can't deny the works. The demonstration of God's power is there. He's pointing away from himself to the Father who called him and sent him to die for us and rise again. Even in Acts chapter 3, the lame man that was healed, miraculous healing, after he was healed, look what happens in the text. Acts 3, the Bible says, so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. He said, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? And why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Then he says in verse 16, and his name, that is Jesus' name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And yes, the faith which comes through him was given, has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Hallelujah. Peter was making it clear. Hey, don't look at us. I know you think we healed him, but really we were just the vessels. The power of God threw, flew through us because we're pointing to Jesus. The demonstration of God's power is a pointing to the Christ and not to the person, nor to the ministry, but to the one, because there's no ministry without Christ. He's the foundation of the church, the head of the church. He's the Lord, and we worship him for that reason. Even in John chapter 9, when the man was blind, and he could not see, and he began to get criticized by the others. In verse 29, 25, he answered and he said to those who were accusing him, he said, listen, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know, though I was blind, 
Now I see. He's telling them, listen, y'all get off my back. I just sat here for all these years and couldn't see. You couldn't help me. And you're supposed to know the law better than anybody. He comes by. I don't know anything about him, but I know that he healed my eyes and I can see. So I'm pointing to him and not just to the healing. Amen. He, the Christ, the Son of God, the Lord, he's pointing to him. I'm going to tell y'all, Stoics and sophists and orators and philosophers, they may have changed the thinking of the Corinthian church, but only the gospel can demonstrate itself by changing a wicked man's life by the power of God. And that is proof enough. I get to stand here as a witness of this. Christ The Lord Jesus Christ changed this wicked man's life by the power of the gospel. Now getting to preach the gospel, announce the gospel, amen, because I know I've been saved by Christ. If the gospel has been reduced to some kind of philosophy, then people would have had to trust in some kind of philosophical explanation to be saved. But the gospel is the life-changing, the undeniable crucified son of the living God, resurrected from the grave. For us, it's greater than some kind of explanation. It is lived out in demonstration by empowered faith of God's people. What you and I look at in these moments is this, realize my faith every day, if it is going to be empowered, it's going to be the faith that I look forward to every day I live to point others away from me Jesus, when I do this act of kindness, I do all things as unto the Lord and not unto men. It's because I want to point away from myself. Even though in the moment I might appreciate this comment or appreciate this recognition, no, Lord, it's not that. It's not by my own glory. It's by your glory. And therefore, I want to point to Jesus. Can you imagine every day lived in such a way that everything that's being done and said fills the child of God's life in such a way that the whole mission of the whole day is to outpour the reflection of Christ to the world around us by what we say, announcing the gospel, and what we actually do. What happened to this cup? This cup here was filled, it emptied out because the things of this world just don't last. We came back to the things of this world, and yet right here before our very eyes, it's emptied out again. You know, when you keep putting empty into empty, you get empty. Zero plus zero is zero. But the things of Jesus Christ are pure and holy and powerful and sanctifying, and they last. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what we know about this is that right now, Why would we want to keep coming back to the emptiness? Life that keeps filling its cup with the things that always end up empty and never satisfied, it's not worth it. Today I want to tell you that if you're lost without Christ, we're going to go into this time here in just a moment, focus on Jesus in this way. But if you're lost without Christ today, I want to tell you, if you're filling yourself and your life with the things of this world, please, I... I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I plead with you as Christ has risen from the dead. 
from my heart to yours, whoever you may be, sir, ma'am, boy, or girl, listen, these things will not last. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The things of this world are death. And that, just like it looks like, it satisfies for a moment. It fills the cup, our life, for a moment, but it doesn't last, and it's fleeting, and it leads us to an empty life. Today, I want to encourage you in this manner. Repent. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ to be saved. Be filled with Christ. The woman at the well in John chapter 4 was in this way. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water that I might not thirst. And that might be you today. Empty, powerless, no fulfillment of life because life does not make sense until it is given to Jesus Christ. He is your answer. He's not a crutch. He's the ground. He's the one we walk with. He's your answer. But church today, if your cup or your life is already filled with Christ, but you find yourself as a follower of Jesus like the Corinthians were, verse 1, brothers and sisters, I write to you, he said, if that's you and me right now, if you find that you're being compromised in such a way that some of the things of this world are working their way in and you're battling flesh and spirit in such a way, I have questions here that I want to close with in this way before we have our time of of invitation and worship. And here's what it is. If we have to answer no to any of these questions, then that would be an indication that we need our faith revived and refreshed in this way. Based on verse 1 that we read, I bring the gospel into my conversations with strangers every day. And if I have to answer no that I'm not announcing the gospel every day, then I need my faith refreshed and revived right now. And it's possible if we come to Christ for that. Based on verse 2, I'm in the daily habit of crucifying my fleshly desires to fellowship with Jesus. If I have to answer no that I don't take that seriously and recognize, man, I could mess up today. I could make some pretty significant mistakes. I could make a damage to Jesus' name today. I don't want to mess things up for Christ. I want to live for him if I'm not crucifying the flesh, if my answer is no, then I need refreshing revival in my faith today, according to verse 2. In verse 3, I've been choosing not to hide my weaknesses from God, but instead, I've been consciously giving them to him so that my pride is not in God's way to use me. If I have to answer no, and then I'm embarrassed by my weakness, and I don't talk to God about those things, then it might very well be that I need my faith revived and refreshed in that way. And in verse 4, I live every day with anticipation that there will be moments today that I will get to reflectively point people to Jesus Christ. If every day I'm not thinking in that manner and I'm not trying to use whatever I'm doing and saying to point people to Jesus, then my faith somehow is living a powerless life in such a way that I'm, I'm living out of entitlement. I'm living out of taking advantage of the day and taking it for granted Instead, Lord Jesus, I get to point others to you. That's what I need to answer yes to. 
So I'm going to ask you this, this morning, church family, where we are. If we're lost without Jesus Christ, please understand, this does not satisfy. It will always be empty. Today, you can come forward. There will be elders, Pastor Capacey, and others will be here to say, if you want to have a conversation, to say, I am empty. I'm living for the things of this world. I know it, and that's why I'm here this morning, because I know, according to the gospel, I need Jesus Christ to save me. But if you're a brother and sister, remember, we're battling flesh and spirit. If we're compromising in any kind of way the philosophies of this world, it's going to make our faith that much more ineffective. I pray today that we come, that we think, that we meditate, we ponder. And if there's any way that any of these texts apply to us today and we say, I need to be empowered in my faith in verse 2, in verse 5, in verse 1, or all of them, that we are honest with God. And we leave this place ready to say, I'm living the Spirit-filled, empowered life for Christ because this world needs to know who Jesus Christ is. Let's pray. Lord, you are good mercy endures forever. This is your service. Your will be done. We submit to you and we want your word to be the success of our life and not any philosophy that we buy into. We take our counsel from you. We believe your gospel and you are our life, Lord Jesus. Empower the faith. Refresh the saints this morning. Refresh the church with empowered faith, help us as your people to be revived in this manner. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Let's stand together and seek the Lord, church.